Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, quick note before we start the show, these are difficult times and everybody should make sure that they have what they need first. But if you are able to support Canada Land, we are feeling the pinch as everyone else is, uh, but we are determined to keep producing podcasts and running our news service and uh, providing you with stuff that we think uh, might help. So if we are a positive part of your life during this ordeal and you are in a position to help out, you can get ad-free versions of this show. And you'll be helping us uh, keep doing what we're doing. If you go and click on the link in your show notes for five bucks Canadian a month, you can in moments be getting uh, an ad-free feed of Canada Land every Monday and Thursday. If you're listening on a laptop or desktop, as so many are uh, at home right now, just go to canadalandshow.com slash join and uh, you can very quickly be getting ad-free podcasts for five bucks Canadian a month uh, that way. If you already support us and you want to give us a one-time help, you can just send us money through Interact Transfer at support at canadalandshow.com. Everything that we receive helps. We rely on your support. Thank you. Morgan Campbell, sports writer, most recently the Toronto Star, now freelancing, writing a book, joining me from somewhere else in Toronto? Yeah, I'm actually at home in Ajax where they're building houses across the street. So you, might, you also might hear the tractors drive by, but I'm good at a safe social distance. All right. Might hear the tractors, might hear your baby. Today, Morgan, we're going to talk about the truth, the truth about covering up my big dumb face. Masks revealed. Today, we are going to talk about sports writing in a world without sports. And this week's COVID coverage roundup, part three of 108. Who deserves our ire this time? Good to have you here. Hey, good to be here. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to everybody by Stephen Vevada, Allison Koistra, Stephen Andrew, Harry Mangalam, Tom Wilson, Alex Goudreau, Iris Chan, and Jay. Hi, my name is Jay. I live in Meaford, Ontario, and I work in construction. And I support Canada Land because it's great to hear a unique perspective of the media from Jesse. Uh, although not cynical, always charismatic and 
thought-provoking, and I really appreciate the other programs, the deep dives, cool mules, and I really enjoy the Commons program. Thanks so much. Keep up the great work. Okay, Morgan, I want to uh, begin by playing you a clip from CBC's The National from two months ago. Should I or shouldn't I wear a mask? That's probably the single most common question we've been getting in the wake of this coronavirus outbreak. If you're like me, just some dude in a random Canadian city, the answer to the question, should I wear a mask, is it depends, but probably not. Okay, so that was Andrew Chang, uh, one of the anchors of The National two months ago, basically telling us to not wear masks. Here is the CBC again, just this week. A research team at Oxford looked at how every country is using masks and says COVID-19 is an unusual case where masks can help because people who don't show symptoms can also be highly contagious. Morgan, what do you make of those two, I think, contradictory messages about whether or not people should be wearing masks? Yeah, they're not purely contradictory only because the second report came after some new information came. So you make your first report based on what you know, and then what what did the scientists tell you? The scientists told you that this virus behaves a little bit differently from other viruses. So, uh, you know, like the more lax standard of, of precaution uh, that might have got you by through flu season or a cold season isn't going to help during COVID, so you might have to take this extra step. Maybe we recommend that you take this extra step. So I now, if those two reports were like in the same newscast, they would seem more contradictory to me. Or if that new information had come out and CBC still said the same thing, and the scientists said a mask would help, and CBC still said, well, uh, wear it if you want to, then it would seem a little bit more contradictory. But like in light of the new information, it doesn't seem as contradictory to me. I'm going to tread very carefully here because... You know, this is a critique of whether or not misinformation was spread. So I certainly don't want to spread misinformation in trying to get my head around this. But I have fallen into a very deep rabbit hole of the mask conversation. <laughs> I can and, tell. Uh, yeah, I'm deep in mask land and I've been reading like, should you, shouldn't you, who's saying what? Um, and I've been doing that like from the beginning of this to the current day. And I think that right now we're starting to see just uh, this week the tune that the media is singing about masks is changing rapidly. And I think we're going to start to see a lot more people wearing masks and and we may even see that being mandated. And as far as I can tell, Morgan, that is not because of new information because of this research team at Oxford. As far as I can tell, this was already known. And, uh, you know, the Guardian was saying some time ago, look, if you are likely to be in close contact with somebody infected, a mask cuts the chance of the disease being passed on, which really from the beginning, I was skeptical about this. Oh, you don't need a mask stuff because it just didn't make sense. It didn't make sense to me in a couple of ways. It didn't make sense that we're, we're simultaneously being told that people can have COVID but not know it and be very contagious. And so we were told, you know, masks should only be worn by people who have COVID. If you don't have it, you don't have to wear a mask. But we're also being told that a lot of people who have it don't know that they have it. So that seems like contradictory information to me. Like, well, if everyone was wearing a mask, then a lot of people who have it and don't know it would not be spreading it to the same extent. And the second thing that didn't make sense to me is that we know that doctors and medical health professionals and nurses were wearing masks, even though they didn't have it because they were going to be in close contact right. with people who did. Why would that work for them as a preventative measure for people who are not infected, but not for everybody else? And as far as I am able to determine, 
there is a different reason why we were told we don't need masks and a legitimate reason, which is, of course, that there was a short supply of this uh, of these, you know, these 75 cent masks, which should have been widely available. Right. Which, you know, everyone was warned we would need, which it was it was possible for us all to have them and to have a limitless supply of them. But because of numerous failures that I've been in my rabbit hole reading about uh, the supply chain of, of the manufacturing being outsourced to China, of our governments not listening to health professionals who said that we have to have enough of a supply and reserve, basically like a large scale systemic failure of society, of like capitalism, of the supply chain of, uh-huh. of governance, they realized at an early stage that this was going to be a scarce resource and they didn't want us to be hoarding masks the way that we hoarded toilet paper. And so I think they gave us, I think, kind of erroneous information. I don't think we were trusted with the full picture for good reasons, but I think that the media maybe just took that note from the World Health Organization and the Center for Disease Control and passed it on uncritically in ways that I think we're now realizing there was a level of misinformation that we were receiving. But given, and I can say this now because I'm out of like the daily news rat race and I have no, I'm very much still an active journalist, but I have no plans to return to the daily news rat race. So I can say this as a guy who spent 18 years in the daily news rat race, like given the the daily news rat races, inability to synthesize, analyze this type of information in real time. Was it maybe better that they did it this way, knowing that the alternative really would have been, hey, everyone, panic and get your face masks. Uh, And then there's none for anybody. I think it's a really interesting question that actually forces some like basic questions about what our role is in that daily news. Yes. I'm not going to heap scorn on journalists who took those talking points from the World Health Organization and said, our role is to just like make sure, like I remember it wasn't that long ago, it feels like a long time ago, that just getting people to do anything, to to socially isolate, to listen to the authorities, it felt like the media, our primary role was making sure that people took this seriously. And I think that people were feeling very hesitant to push back on any messaging we were getting from health authorities. There should have been, there could have been, if there was a limitless supply of masks, you know, here's the proper way to wear a mask. Here's what masks work and which ones don't. Here's how to use one. So your question is, like, given what we knew at the time, would it have been better? I don't know. I mean, I don't know that as journalists we're supposed to necessarily be like, oh, let's keep the public from the truth because it might have a bad outcome if everybody has the truth. I can imagine a public message that was like, look, in a perfect world, we would be telling you that you should be wearing a mask. And here's the right way to wear one. But doctors and nurses need them more than you. And you just got to stay home until we figure out this problem. That would be the truth. That would be not treating the public as children. And would people have listened? Like, sure, some people would have hoarded with that information. And maybe we'd be in worse shape now than we are. But but I do think there's a cost to having passed on misinformation. Because now a lot of people are like, they're prone to seeing all the information they're getting as a big conspiracy between the media and government anyhow. And this doesn't help. It doesn't help trust in media, you know? Yes, but that's what happens at at that level of news. Again, in the daily hourly news chase. My question, though, is the news media work with the information they have. So in real time, they're not necessarily going to know that if we think the CDC or World Health Organization is not telling us the whole story about masks. You're not going to know that in real time. You're not going to know that between the noon news and the 2.30 news and the 5 o'clock news and the 6 o'clock news, right? This is, as you've been able to discover, this is these are things that only kind of come to light over time and after like more extensive 
investigating and question asking. And, but at the same time, if you're in, if you're in uh, World Health Organization shoes or like any of the municipal public health offices and you know or suspect that there are not enough masks to go around, the thing you can get people to do is wash your hands because you washing your hands doesn't stop me from washing my hands. But if there's only one mask and two people, only one person can get the mask. If the formulation and the dissemination of these specific talking points uh, have to do with people in the know, knowing that there is going to be a scarcity of these things, it makes sense for them to emphasize the things that you can do without affecting everyone else, the things that everyone can do without affecting everyone else over the things that you know are going to affect someone else. If I take this mask, that means you don't have it. Which of us needs it more? Which is, you know, the reckoning that's going to come with ventilators in New York City in a minute. Yeah, I absolutely agree that you emphasize this is about like real politic. What is going to be the most beneficial right now? Right. I understand why the WHO and the CDC, which are not that's not science talking. That's policy talking informed by science. And given this dire situation they were facing, I could see why they would say, first of all, emphasizing the things that, that can be controlled. Absolutely. Let's do that. The part that I'm taking issue with is where I think there was an element of active misinformation where the public was basically told, ah, this isn't going to help you. Don't even bother with this. Don't even bother with it. And, you know, if we had known earlier, like just, it was only two days ago that Trudeau announced that he's got Canadian factories making masks. Yes. And Trump still hasn't forced factories to do so. So if the public knew early on, like, wow, our governance is really, really fucked up here and we're going to be left in a bad situation very quickly, then there would have been a lot of public pressure on governance to, yes. to start manufacturing those things earlier. So I, 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 as a journalist, I have to believe that a more informed public is a better thing than a public that is treated like, wow, if everyone knows how bad this situation is, there's going to be panic. They're going to go hoard these things and our health system is going to be even in worse shape. So let's treat them like children. Let's tell them stuff that's not necessarily true. And let's hope that the news media carries that along. And to your point that, yeah, you know, breaking news is often broken, but this is two months ago. And there's other parts of the world, like right now in the Czech Republic, it's mandatory. If you go outside, you got to wear a mask. Austria, it's now mandatory. Uh, in a Asian countries, the first thing they did, and they, you know, they knew from SARS, wearing masks. It absolutely, at those early stages, would have made a big difference. But, you know, we just didn't have them because of uh, bigger problems that I think also need to be ultimately addressed. Yes. You know, the producer of this show, David Crosby, said to me, like, well, like, Jesse, do you think that this was like in bad faith that the news media was spreading this message? And uh, I absolutely don't think that any bad faith. In fact, it's just the opposite. I feel like bad information was spread in good faith. Right. And that's a really unique circumstance and kind of a troubling one to me. So listen, Morgan, uh, as a non-sports attuned person, I'm used to there being like this uh, just sort of a constant white noise around me of sports information, sports chatter, the sound of people playing various sporting games and discussing said games. And now I am not aware of that soothing white noise <laughs> that I that I tune out. It's there's just a, a vacancy. There's just a void. I don't mean to be glib. This is pretty serious for somebody like you. What is your life like since sports stopped? <laughs> Well, a few things. What happens is, you know, some of these stories now, a lot of these stories become about how sport deals with this crisis. And here's the thing about sports is that on the one hand, we want sports because it's something that you can pay attention to and invest in and lose yourself in that has nothing to do with this pandemic because like mainstream news, it's pandemic all day, every day. And sports can let you escape from that. But at the same time, Look at how the NBA reacted, right? All, the, all it took was one positive test and they had to shut everything down. 
because those guys travel, because those guys interact with so many people, like each one, each player in the NBA testing positive could potentially have been a vector, you know, in the starting point for hundreds of infections. But one of the stories I wrote since sports shut down was about the ultimate fighting championship. Their president, Dana White, is adamant that they are going to have these big fights on April 18th. And they wanted to have them in New York City. That was the, that was the original um, venue. Was what? Bro- was, was they're, bro- go- they're going ahead with a big fight? No, 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 no. What, what happened was the original venue was the Barclays Center in Brooklyn. You know, but as this pandemic spreads and it becomes clear that New York City is a hotspot, uh, the commission steps in and says, there's no way you can't come to New York. We're shutting down everything. You can't come to New York. So now the Ultimate Fighting Championship is on this uh, hunt for a new venue. And the irony there is that when that organization first got famous in the mainstream around 2005, 2006, you know, a lot of people saw them as human cockfighting. And what they wanted to do was find every jurisdiction, every state, every province, every country that had a really strict regulatory environment and go there and get licensed there to show the public, the broader public, the mainstream sports fan, the mainstream sports outlets, the ESPNs of the world, show them that they are in fact a legitimate sport and they can operate within a strict set of rules. Now it's completely the opposite and they are searching the world for a jurisdiction with lax enough rules to let them continue with this event. And where it ties into sports media is that you know, you have sports media that cover sports, but you also have sports media outlets that partner with these leagues in these broadcast deals. And so uh-huh. the UFC and ESPN, as much as ESPN, you know, is running these public service announcements about social distancing and being responsible, et cetera, and they are not telling the UFC what to do. But if the UFC happens to find some offshore place, if they can go to, I don't know, the places where people launder money, if they can go to Cayman Islands, uh, Dubai, Seychelles, wherever – and put these guys together and have a fight, ESPN's going to show it because what's happening now is that because of this vacuum of live sports content, like whoever doesn't shut down, whoever hasn't been shut down, they become like, uh, you watch The Simpsons, remember when Mr. Burns blocked out the sun and then everyone had to use electricity and he got rich? This is whatever, this is, this is what the UFC hopes to be in this Whoa, situation. That's amazing. You just made a Simpsons reference and I was thinking of a, of a different Simpsons reference. Which one was when that? TV is all off the air in Springfield and Krusty drives out to the desert to a little recording shack and does the Krusty hour where he's just like got a cockroach and a, a soda can <laughs> yeah. and he's the only thing on TV. Oh, that's, that, that's very similar. So I, I, I think in, a, in an ultimate fighting championship of Simpsons analogies, I think mine wins. Um, but <laughs> but I, I do appreciate you putting this in terms that I can understand. They would be the only game in town, literally, right. if they could do this. Absolutely. So these sports, like, Sports TV networks, you know, they're showing all this archived footage, you know, and tapping into everyone's nostalgia. But live sports still trumps almost everything as, as a broadcast property. Like live live sports are still cord cutter proof. They're commercial proof, all of this stuff. So if you can get something live, you're going to win the ratings battle, right? Um, you know, but the problem for, say, the Ultimate Fighting Championship is this is a, a pay-per-view event. So this is where if I want to watch the big fight, I have to go, I have to pay extra. Um, yeah. But given the unemployment numbers, like who has $60, $70, 80 to spare on oh, They'll find f- it. I, my guess is people will well, find it. Well, that is true too. But I mean, okay, so, and, and then this gives you something to write about. Like, it's a really interesting situation that sports media is in because one thing that is, be- you know, where media is an essential service during this and everyone is a media junkie and everyone is just like hitting refresh for news stories. Yes. Insatiable appetite. And all the journalists I know, though this could 
totally exacerbate all of the industry tensions and it's already leading to layoffs and news organizations are going under, we're not even cognizant of the long-term effects because everyone's just hustling to make deadline after deadline because there's so much to write about. It's the opposite situation for sports writers, I would imagine. Like, it's just a, like, what do you write about? Is it just a, a shutdown of, of, of the sports media complex? Well, this is what you're seeing. So like, as David and I were discussing offline, it's what it highlights is how indispensable sports are, but also how replaceable they are. Not maybe replaceable is too strong a word, but you look at, you know, my old workplace, the Toronto Star, and they have Bruce Arthur, who is, who is a high profile and really highly paid columnist. He's not writing sports right now. He's on the COVID beat, which makes sense because as much as you're paying him, you can't pay him to write about stuff that's not happening. Um, right, as right. much as you're paying him, you got to pay, you pay him to write about the thing that everyone wants to read. And everyone wants to read COVID right now. And people would like to be able to read about sports. But again, in the absence of live action, you do have limited options, you know, for, for story topics. There are only so many, um, how does Major League Baseball deal with COVID-19 stories you can write. And, you know, the situation is always changing. So you can write a story one week about how sports might look on the other side of COVID-19. And next week, the landscape might change. It probably will change. Yeah, so all these organizations now are trying to figure out how best to deploy these resources. So in some cases, yeah, you can take sports writers who who have a solid grounding in non-sports stuff and and, and redeploy them to the COVID-19 beat. Otherwise, it's not easy, but I see people getting through it. Like this New York Times sports section doesn't lack for stories. And the other thing is, because sports are businesses, there really isn't necessarily a shortage of stories on how businesses deal with COVID-19 because that's always changing too. Like part of the reason why the Ultimate Fighting Championship, why they refuse to uh, cancel their long-term schedule is because one, the company has these, they were sold a few years back. It was a $4 billion transaction and the owners want a return on that investment. And Dana White, the president of the UFC, has he has made it a point of pride that they haven't laid anyone off. Mainstream sports organizations either laying people off, cutting salary, things like this. So you can still write about sports from the standpoint of these different organizations and how they deal with the economic and health fallout from this pandemic. So there are things to write about. It's just a, it's just a different set of things. And if you're one of these people that the only thing you ever wrote about is games, then you're in trouble. But if you are a person who can write you know, beyond the playing field, there's still stuff to write about. It just looks like the coverage in the rest of your outlet because every single section is, you know, the central story is how is, you know, insert group of people here dealing with COVID-19. And what happens afterwards? Like so these major events for media organizations, the Olympics or just ongoing sports coverage, reporters in locker rooms, like, <laughs> you know, you're writing about what's going to happen to these uh, sporting organizations after this is all over. What's going to happen to the sports media when this is all over? Do you see this having like a lasting impact? In some ways, yes. One of the first things that Major League Baseball did, so this was in that two or three day overlap period after the NBA had had shut down. But before the other leagues decided they had to shut down. And what Major League Baseball told the people that cover Major League Baseball is that reporters are no longer allowed in the locker room. And the thing about, you know, I covered baseball for a couple of years and like you do a lot of hanging around, standing around, waiting around in the dugout, but also in the locker room because they're open to the media for a couple hours before the game and then some time after the game. And this is where you talk to people. So there's organized media, but then there's also just kind of this free form interaction. And so if you want to write about somebody specific 
you know, who, who the team has not decided to trot out there, you can go find him in the locker room, start a conversation. And a lot of good stories come from that, just from conversations you wind up having in the locker room that have nothing necessarily to do with the scheduled media events. But what Major League right. Baseball said was no more reporters in the locker room because we can't have just, you know, all these civilians in here. We don't know if you're sick or not. So what we're going to do is after every game, we will make some players available and the coach available, the manager in a press conference type setting. And so in the initial days after that, and I'm not going to criticize people for overreacting because people didn't know, most people didn't know at that point how serious this thing was about to become. Mm -hmm. But people that cover baseball were understandably upset because they said, well, if we can't get into locker rooms, it really severely limits the depth and breadth of coverage we can provide. And it increases message control for management, right? That's what I was about to, that's where this is headed. Baseball is a little bit different because you have the Baseball Writers Association of America and they function kind of as a union for everyone that covers baseball. And this locker room access is one of these things that they have negotiated with Major League Baseball. But I, I would be surprised to see baseball and other sports restart with this type of free access to locker rooms like the you know the NFL if you cover the NFL those guys do media like on Wednesday and then they do media after the game and that's that but to your point you know, I remember having this experience like covering say the Toronto Raptors the last couple of years where you would go to practice and you know the head coach speaks every day after practice certain players speak after practice not always necessarily the players you want to speak to the point is you do things that way and the benefit to the organization is, yeah, you don't get the guy over in the corner talking to me saying F the coach and his game plan. I hate it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> what you have is the coach kind of speaking on behalf of the team and a couple of players who you pretty much trust not to say crazy stuff. They say their things. So anyone who just needs something, a couple quotes to plug into a story, they have what they need. And what you get is like a lot of uniformity. So you go from. The start of the sun to the National Post to the athletic day in, day out, you see a lot of the same thing. And so, yeah, organizations, the team see a great benefit in this because whatever message they want to get out there is the one that's getting out there. And you don't have these rogue interviews with disgruntled players um, kneecapping team management. So when social distancing is over, when this pandemic is over, it would not surprise me to see Major League Baseball teams say, hey, we actually don't mind it this way. Now, the reporters you would hate it. And baseball, too, is kind of like the last bastion you know, of that type of free access to the talent. And then boxing is at the other end of the spectrum. Boxers will, like, hand you their cell phone number, please call me, even, like, halfway famous boxers. But um, I don't know that that type of free access is coming back. So teams can say, we did this for your health, but they will find a benefit in the fact that they have so much more control over the messaging that they're not going to want to go back. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, 
It's AG1, and that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now, and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Morgan, what we like to do on this show is find things that maybe got slept on, news items and topics that should have gotten more attention than they did, and then duly note them. So I got a couple things to duly note. I'm going to share one, and then maybe maybe you got something that you can talk about. Absolutely. Okay, so uh, the Edmonton Journal reported that two men were killed on a rural Alberta road as they were hunting to feed their families after COVID-19 layoffs. The two men who were shot and killed, their names are Jake Sansom and Morris Cardinal, and they were both Métis. They have Métis ancestry. They have hunting rights. We don't know the full story about this. We don't know, of course, who did this or why. But um, a lot of uh, people on Twitter are raising alarms about this because there is a situation where um, farmers and rural citizens have a tense, anxious relationship with indigenous people. And the fact that these two guys were out hunting to feed their families and then were shot and killed raises questions. And I think a lot of people were bringing uh, back to memory the killing of Colton Bushy, the the Gerald Stanley case. And I think that a lot of anxiety was expressed that this might fall through the cracks, given that everybody's focus is on other things right now. I don't know what happened, but I would hate for this to go unnoticed and unexplored. And, uh, you know, when we do find out more about this, hopefully we will. I'll share that as well. Duly noted. Morgan, what do you have to duly note? This whole COVID-19 pandemic has me thinking about how we in the mainstream media, like to the extent that I'm still, you know, a, a part of that, need to take this opportunity that the crisis provides to adjust our relationship to the truth is, I think, how I want to put it. Because we talked at the top of this podcast about misinformation. Um, but every single day, I guess it's at five o'clock, Donald Trump shows up on television, mm-hmm. flanked by these mm-hmm. scientists. And networks give him time. Networks just allow him to talk, turn over their airwaves to him. Even though each and every one of us knows that Donald Trump is the least informed person near the dais. But he's the least informed person within a mile of that microphone. And so now we in the mainstream media need to ask ourselves, like, what is our job? As we talked about at the top of this podcast, like, is the job to enhance the audience's literacy on the topic at hand, politics, health, et cetera. Is our job to make the audience smarter or is our job to hand a megaphone to the president no matter what he says? I understand that he's the president. But at the same time, if you're a news organization and your commitment is to the truth and it's different, like if... World Health Organization is giving you a strategic half-truth, but you have no way of knowing it's a half-truth until much later. That's one thing. But three years into his presidency, three years and a quarter into his presidency, and several decades into his life as a public figure, we know that Donald Trump, when placed in front of the microphone, more often than not, does not tell the truth. So if I am a news organization and truth is the business I'm in, why am I handing my airwaves over to this person who is not telling the truth? And this is not just Donald Trump lying about how rich he is. This is Donald Trump making up stuff that's going to get people killed. And so 
this to me is an opportunity for news organizations, print, digital, broadcast to recalibrate their relationship with the truth and get closer to the truth. This is why we all got into this business is to tell true stories, not to become megaphones for aspiring autocrats. Like that's not why I got into journalism was to just become a stenographer. And so this is an opportunity. And I would hope that like decision makers in this industry note the fact that they are at a point where they can make a decision to cover these news conferences in ways that actually enhance the public's understanding of this crisis instead of obscuring it. And so that's what I would note this week. Morgan, that is huge. I mean, what you're asking for is absolutely unprecedented and huge because there's this weird like spectrum within journalism where on the one hand, if somebody says like nonsense or makes accusations or says stuff that's not true or we don't know that it's true, we understand yes. that we have a res- we can't just like broadcast that. Yes. If somebody makes accusations or a Me Too allegation or a murder accusation. There's a whole process that we go through before we put that on the airwaves of vetting the information, the credibility, asking the other side for for their take on it. But all of that goes out the window when the person saying untrue things is themselves just newsworthy because of who they are. And there's no one more newsworthy than the president. There's no one more powerful than the president. So that is a weakness in our system of information management that Trump has been exploiting from the start. Absolutely. That journalists will say, hey, if it's the president, all of it goes out the window. And the very fact that he's saying this, you know, if President Trump were to say COVID-19 is cured by gumballs, the fact that he's saying that you could argue is news. What he's saying isn't true. What he's saying is dangerous. What he's saying is going to kill people. But it's news because he's saying it. That rationale is getting thinner and thinner as more people die. And as it becomes more clear that the mismanagement of the United States is going to be one of the greatest tragedies, the blood on this guy's hands, we're like, this is going to be the defining thing of his presidency. And and reality, there's no partisan spin on a virus. It just is. It doesn't care about how he's (laughs) uh, manipulating our understanding. And I think that I'm I'm hearing from you and I'm hearing this elsewhere as well, that increasingly a lot of people have been calling this for a long time. But now that it's just so urgent and dire, we are hearing people say, like, it is irresponsible to give the president of the United States airtime. Yes. And really, you got to just like record him saying it and then vet it afterwards. Yes. You know, clip it and then have the analysis just to hit, you know, uh, go live with this guy is actually a disastrous decision. Uh, I think I agree with you. Duly noted. I got one last thing, which is more of just a clarification about last week's show. Morgan, I was talking with Jan Wong about uh, an opinion column in the Globe and Mail that uh, we both agreed should never have been published. uh, That was essentially arguing that maybe we can let old people die for the sake of the economy. And uh, wait, who wrote that? That was uh, (laughs) that was Lawrence Martin. Uh, who was basically entertaining that maybe Trump had a good idea that the cure can't be worse than the disease. Lawrence Martin and was not ashamed. Hold on. He was not ashamed to put his name to that piece of writing. He was not ashamed to put Jeez. it. I mean, you know, he danced around it and he wasn't saying, I advocate this position. He was sort of saying, you know, maybe Trump's got a point here. Uh, so I, I I, don't think the Globe Mail should have ever published that. Jay no. Long didn't think they should have ever publish that. And we stand, there's no clarification needed there. But in discussing that, we were talking about it in the context of free speech. And what I thought Jan Wong was saying, uh, I asked her afterwards, this is the point that she was trying to make. The point she was trying to make and with which I agreed was the fact that he's got freedom of speech does not give him freedom and, and a right to have the Globe and Mail say it for him. Yeah. 
Yes. And, uh, you know, like, you know, he can say this elsewhere, but the Globe and Mail shouldn't be publishing this stuff. But the way that that was phrased was, oh, he can he can say that in his living room, but he shouldn't be saying that in the Globe and Mail. And a lot of listeners or a handful of listeners took that as me and Jan Wong saying that freedom of speech only applies in private, you know, and that it shouldn't apply in public. And I don't believe that to be true. And Jan Wong doesn't believe that to be true. I think that was just, uh, and the fault is ours. A reasonable listener could have reached that conclusion based on the way that that was phrased. So just want to clear up. We believe in freedom of speech. Lawrence Martin can even say that outside of, uh, he can say it on his blog. He can say that in a park. But uh, I just don't think the Globe Mail should be publishing that. And that was the point we're both trying to make. Well, yeah. Well, and, and at that point, too, it's not free speech. It's paid speech because the Globe and Mail is paying him to write this op-ed. So the Globe and Mail can say, well, we don't feel like paying you to write this because it's crazy for you to advocate that old people die to restart the economy. And we're not even going to entertain that discussion because it is dangerous and nonsensical. And so you go say it wherever you want. As you said, publish it on your blog or whatever. But like if we're going to pay for stuff again and our business is we're in the truth business we're only going to pay you to write stuff that we think is going to make people smarter we think it's going to make people better informed and this doesn't meet that standard that's not censoring him that's a company saying we're not buying this crazy take duly noted the last thing we're going to talk about is i, I guess just throughout this it seems like this is the place where uh we are, we're going to go through the coverage each week and I maintain that I, I still think the media is doing a generally good job and is generally finding its its best self and its public purpose uh, during this uh, crisis. But there's got to be somewhere where we uh, name and shame those <laughs> who uh, <laughs> who give us uh, not their best. And that's that's what we're going to do again, Morgan. And, and it's not just it's not just about Canadian media companies. Uh, the first uh, thing I want to flag here is fucking Facebook. Uh, <laughs> National Observer looking into this social media companies won't take this simple step to address coronavirus misinformation and good on the National Observer for looking into this. You know, if you see uh, after all of the stuff that Facebook was found to uh, be perpetrating in, in terms of bad information during the election process. They created the technology to flag and report erroneous misinformation, fake news, if it was of, an, of, a, of a political nature. They don't have that for coronavirus stories. Just some community-based technological, like, flag this as this is misinformation. You know, press a button, and they can automate a process whereby if enough people said, we don't think this is real, then, it, then you know, it, it goes up to some next level of vetting. They are not doing that, and it seems like, dear God, they absolutely should, and so should Twitter. I read the story. I'm not clear on what their rationale was. Or is it just that they know that they're so dependent on selling like these engagement stats to advertisers that they don't want to do anything that appears to diminish, you know, the number of users, number of posts, number of engagements, you know, per day? Like, is, is that what's driving this reluctance to crack down on this? I guess so. I mean, you know, the history of these companies is that they they want to do as little as possible until there's a disaster and everybody's got their pitchforks out and then they like then they overdo it and they fuck up the, the response. But they're completely reactive. And uh, I'm sure that anything that messes with just the natural automated, uh, you know, machine based flow of clicks is something that they, they do, like, you know, they don't want to take responsibility beyond what they're forced to. So I guess once again, we have to force them to take responsibility for this because I'm still seeing people sharing stupid, dumb stuff and stupid, dumb stuff is also dangerous stuff in this environment. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's mystifying why you would want, if I'm whoever's running, I guess Zuckerberg still runs Facebook. If I'm running Twitter, like, why do I even want my platform associated with this type of misinformation and when this thing and i think people don't think it will affect them 
or they don't think the broader effect will be big enough to implicate them. But if a million Americans die of this, if a quarter of a million die of Americans die of this, like why would you want, if you're Facebook, why would you want all those fingers pointing back at you instead of Facebook or Twitter stepping in and saying, hey, we actually want to be the people that help spread the solution instead of spreading the problem. Like, I don't know that, hey, I'm, I'm not the billionaire that runs these companies, but I just don't know <laughs> that like the, the short term benefit of these, these clicks and this engagement is worth what could happen on the other end. I mean, I'll tell you, I don't think that it's necessarily somebody is like, uh, you know, counting beans and saying, oh, we can make more money if we let misinformation rain. Right. I really feel like there's like my read on the situation, Morgan, is that they don't want to get their hands dirty in the imperfect world of like news, of taking responsibility for making ad hoc day in, day out judgment calls on what's good information and what's bad. And there's no other way to do it. They like things that are like automated. They like things that machines could figure out. News is messy. You're saying do the right thing and get rid of the misinformation, but then they're in the business of deeming what's misinformation and what's real information. It gets politicized very quickly, and then people are pointing fingers at them that they're partisan hacks. You know, that's what happened when they when they uh, yes. actually had to <laughs> yes. involve themselves in political information, and they just don't want the hassle. They just want to make money and play like we're a dumb pipe. We have we take no responsibility for this stuff. Right. And I think that you know the current of popular opinion and regulation is saying like, sorry, you don't get to be above the fray of the daily business of, of human politics, health, interaction. Like you are now, you wanted in, you wanted to connect us. Well, yes. now you're implicated and now you got to take responsibility for it. Well, especially since Facebook and Twitter like have, have positioned themselves and pitched themselves and enriched themselves working yeah. with news organizations saying, hey, we can help you grow your audience. Give us some money. We'll show you how. Hey, we can help you grow your audience. Uh, come visit us or we'll send a person over and show you how. And you growing your audience with their platform ultimately benefits their platform, but don't pay attention to that. Now we can just help you grow your audience. But yeah, if you want to be the people, you're, you know, you're, you're like a medium for the media because you get in between the mainstream media and an audience and say, we will help you grow your audience. Okay, cool. But yeah, then you cannot then say, well, you guys are in the truth business. The other guys are in the lie business. And, uh, we're just going to say hands off and amplify everyone's message. Like it, it, Common sense says it shouldn't work that way. But again, those guys are richer than I am, so they therefore must be smarter than both of us, right? All right, now I'm going to nitpick a nitpicker. I mean, in, in comparison to that last one, this is pretty small potatoes. But you know what? There's nothing worse than when somebody gets pedantic about, like, don't say literally, and, and then <laughs> and they're actually wrong. And so the Globe and Mail's style editor sent a memo to all staff warning them not to use the term exponential growth when discussing COVID-19 cases and writing, the cases are growing quickly, but they are not growing exponentially. We often incorrectly use exponential when what we mean is rapid linear growth, wrote this uh, style editor. And this was, uh, you know, absolutely people use uh, as just rhetorical flourish. They say exponentially when what they mean is greatly or quickly. But this was technically accurate. Yes. It is growing exponentially. That was the, the right term to use. And I think that uh, this is this is not a time for school marmish little, you know, like <laughs> it was funny seeing Globe and Mail reporters wanting to blast their own style editor. <laughs> but, you know, it's sort of against the Globe and Mail's you know, kind of like Simon Haupt. It's just sort of like very reporterly, you know, hmm, they're not growing exponentially, says our uh, style and standards editor, but is unwilling to say, you know, erroneously, says our style and standards editor. Uh, a fact is a fact. They're growing exponentially. 
Please use the word. It's the right word. Well, this reminds me of, to tie a couple of threads together, one, it reminds me of Donald Trump. Remember when he said the, the hurricane was going to uh, Alabama and none of the models had the hurricane going to Alabama. So he went and he got the Sharpie and he had the person draw the new hurricane uh, <laughs> trajectory map. Because when you look at the graph, the graph is not a line. The graph curves upward very quickly in the way that exponents do. And this is, this. listen, I'm no mathematician. I used to get C's in math in high school, but I respect math. And this is, this is the problem. This style editor is symptomatic. He's, he's well, emblematic of a broader problem in this profession, which is that folks don't understand how statistics work. Mm-hmm. They don't. And like one of the things when I was in journalism school and they made everyone take at least one statistics class and all the journalism nerds thought it was useless, but it was very useful because you don't you don't have to become a professional statistician to at least understand like the ways of thinking, the thought processes a statistics class is trying to teach you and then apply them to what you do. And even in sports writing, like they do this all the time, like baseball people pretend to love numbers, but baseball people never stop and think that like a batting average is actually a percentage and a slugging percentage is actually an average. Right. And this applies to like all different forms of journalism where people don't understand what statistics mean. And so you, it's, it's really tough for people to deploy statistics usefully and deploy these phrases usefully if you don't know what they mean. And I can look at a graph, goddammit, and know what a line looks like and know what a curve looks like. So don't tell me this is rapid linear growth when the curve is not a line. It's a curve. Mm-hmm. So just call it what it is. So that's, I think, uh, what happens when uh, you've got too much editing and, and too many people uh, with a red marker out on a piece of journalism. But things can go wrong the other way as well when uh, there's not anyone vetting information before it is published. And the final thing I'm going to flag is, my God, Conrad Black's column <laughs> in the National Post. Like, it was always just disgusting that the Post continued to hand space over to Lord Black to just, like, kiss Trump's ass in, in this ongoing campaign for a pardon. Mission accomplished. He got his pardon. And still, still, I know they get a lot of traffic off Conrad Black, but, like, you know, this virus is just pointing out everything that was already wrong and everything that was already wrong that we were kind of, like, turning the other way and kind of, like, just enduring and allowing it to kind of continue is now kind of like dangerous. And, uh, you know, I hesitate. To, like, Of course, Conrad Black is going to come in with a Trump supporting take that this is just hysteria, that uh, it's a pandemic of hysteria, not really a pandemic of, of any kind of a, what did he say? More than a virus. The world has succumbed <laughs> to a pandemic of hysteria. And, you know, it's unfortunate because he's just trying to echo what Trump is saying, but it comes out after, you know, it's like yes. the echo of Trump is Conrad Black and Trump has reversed himself. Yes. But we still have Conrad Black in the National Post, just absolutely misinforming people. And there is a generation of people who want nothing more. I mean, we all want to believe that this is all nonsense, overblown, and we don't all have to be taking these measures. But we're going to be finding out. We're already finding out, and it's going to become more and more clear that we did not take this seriously enough. And, uh, you know, when is the Post going to be like, like who at the Post answers for the fact that they're publishing this this, this bullshit, this dangerous bullshit? Uh, they, they have asked us to just sort of like look the other way, 
a lot of reasonable people at the Post who kind of want us to believe that, like, Black is kind of his own entity and nothing that they do is really touched by this. They don't edit his column. And yes, he's in the National Post, but they can't be held responsible. Fuck that. It's time to cancel this column. Like, you know, Conrad Black is is like, let him join everyone else. Don Cherry, Mansbridge, Conrad <laughs> Black can get a podcast. If I if I if I if I'm on podcast, then certainly that, you know, Conrad Black can be on podcast as well. All right, that is Canada Land Shortcuts for this week. Uh, Morgan Campbell, thank you very much for uh, for joining me for it. Anytime, guys. This is always fun. Listen, uh, it has never been easier to support Canada Land and get ad-free versions of our podcasts. You can do so paying in Canadian dollars. Just click on the link in the podcast show notes and you will get an ad-free feed right into your podcatcher or go to canadalandshow.com slash join. You can email me about this show at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send me. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. We have an Instagram account. It is at CanadaLandShow. Morgan, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram at Morgan P. Campbell. Uh, that account is private, but if I think you're cool, I'll, you know, I'll unlock you. On Twitter, at Morgan P. Campbell. Those are probably the two best places to find me. My freelance writing is around. Um, just finished a book proposal. So hopefully, I don't know, if the world doesn't explode by like the fall, I might actually make, have made real progress there. So uh, stay tuned. <laughs> All right. Uh, we got a website. It's CanadaLandShow.com, and you will find the finale to our series, Cool Mules. If you have not checked out that show yet, give it a listen. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. Mm-hmm.